0: Well, I don't know how you listen to your podcasts. I listen via uh, my iPhone. Um, actually, the stats tell me that's how most of you listen. Although I know there's some Android people out there and you listen, some of you listen on Spotify, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, whatever. But here's, here's what I want to tell you about. Um, you, know, you know what's true for me? Uh, maybe you're listening to this episode randomly or, or whatever. I only ever regularly listen to the podcasts I subscribe to. I mean, sometimes I hear about something on social, I'm like, oh, I got to go look at that. And then uh, it's not on my phone when I go to play podcasts, so I don't listen to it. So if you happen to be randomly listening to this and uh, some of these episodes have benefited you and you haven't subscribed yet, would you do that today? Uh, That also really helps us get the word out when you subscribe and when you share. So... Uh, If you found some of these episodes helpful, and we have two for you this week, we have one today with Terry Smith, who's going to talk about uh, becoming a hospitable leader. It's a powerful interview that I think is going to surprise you because you're probably like, yeah, I I got uh, hospitality nailed, Kerry. We're really good at guest services. No, no, no. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about something much deeper, an idea so powerful, actually, that Jack Welch, yeah, the Jack Welch, pulled him aside and said, I want to know more. And they became friends over some of the ideas that we're sharing. And then in a couple of days on Thursday, we got another episode coming out this week with Craig Grishel in, uh, man, I got to tell you, Craig was so honest and so open about the pain of leadership. And on the outside, it all looks great. But on the inside, yeah, he's got the same struggles that you do. And we go back to his early days as a rookie leader where he made a lot of mistakes and talks about the the pain of sort of self-inflicted wounds in leadership and how you get through that. So I think you're going to love it. So if you love that kind of stuff, subscribe. And what you could do if you find any episode helpful is take a screenshot, um, tag me and tag some friends and uh, just share it on your social. That would be amazing. So in the meantime... Everybody's talking about church attendance. And as we've shared before on this podcast and some of my other writings, I think we live in the age where the key to growing attendance is deepening engagement. So the question for you is, what are you doing about engagement during the week? Every single church ministry today, if you're going to have strong leadership, needs a strong engagement strategy. And we have more opportunity than ever before. So how are you going beyond Sunday? And believe it or not, a mobile strategy is critical to that. And the industry leader in that is push pay. And push pay not only enables mobile giving, which is so important. I mean, who carries around checks anymore other than being, you know, in the supermarket line behind that one person left in the world that's trying to pay by check. Uh, other than that, most people, particularly younger people, uh, they're, they're doing everything online. And your church, if you don't have a mobile strategy for that, you are missing out on giving. Plus, PushPay can go way beyond that and help you actually engage with your congregation uh, because they're at the cutting edge of technology. Last year, they helped more than 7,000 clients process billions, yep, that's with a B, of dollars in generosity. And they've got a special offer for podcast listeners. So go to pushpay.com slash carry, C-A-R-E-Y, And you can sign up to talk to a representative who has a special offer just for uh, listeners of this podcast. No obligation, but just a chance to talk to an expert and ask questions about technology. I hope you'll check them out. And speaking of technology, because this is almost 2019, are you a senior or exec pastor trying to figure out how to fund your next big growth project? I mean, it is budget season. Like maybe you're trying to hire new staff, but you can't really afford it. Remodel Health is a new technology solution and an affiliate of Brotherhood Mutual, and they offer a unique health insurance benefits platform that saves most churches, get this, 30 to 50% on their health insurance costs. Yeah, that's actually found money. On average, so what that translates into, for the average church, sixty to $100,000 per year to repurpose toward projects, that can help you do more in your ministry. Whether that's hire staff, do something with your facility, launch a new program. If you want to know more about that, we've got a special page for you as well. Visit RemodelHealth.com forward slash Cary, C-A-R-E-Y, to find out more and receive a free quote and buying guide today. That's RemodelHealth.com forward slash carry. And I hope you head on over and check him out today. Well, in the meantime, let's jump into my conversation today with Terry Smith. Terry is the lead pastor of the Life Christian Church, Metropolitan New York City. Actually, it's kind of fun because they're in Jersey. And we talk about the lack of hospitality culture that he faced when he got there and how he created one. Uh, he's a best-selling author. He speaks all over the world. And I think you're going to love this conversation with terry smith terry welcome to the podcast it's really really good to
1: have you thank you so much carrie it is a tremendous privilege to be with you thank you
0: yeah we met what about a year ago i guess in uh, the office you're sitting in now
1: we did you were here speaking at the collide summit which we were pleased to host that year and it was great to connect with you
0: that was a lot of fun yeah it was a power green room man mark batterson was there uh Ann Voskamp was there. That was the first time we actually connected face to face. It was, and many others. It was a lot of fun.
1: It was. And uh, congratulations to you, Carrie, for your success. Your podcast is amazing. Uh, frankly, I didn't start listening until I met you a year ago. It, <laughs> That's the way it, it is, goes. Nobody it, listens until it they has, meet me. It has made such a positive impact on my life, on my staff team. And then I've just started reading through. I didn't see it coming. And uh, uh, it's amazing. It, it's, it's amazing to watch God's grace on your life and ministry. And it, it's fun to watch somebody like you have so much success. Well,
0: appreciate that. And as you said, it is a grace. I mean, I think that's an Australian, New Zealand term. I've heard a few of my friends from that part of the world use it, but there's just a grace, you know, where you can't fully explain. Uh, what happened. But here we are. And I'm really, really delighted that you're going to be contributing to the podcast, not just listening. So you got a brand new book. It's called The Hospitable Leader. Uh, create environments where people and dreams flourish. And uh, endorsed by Jack and Susie Welch. I got to ask you, how'd you swing that? That's like not everybody. <laughs> are they like your next door neighbors?
1: <laughs> uh, no, it, it's kind of crazy because Jack Welch famously doesn't endorse books, so I'm I'm really blessed by wow. his endorsement and Susie's endorsement and their oh, neither friendship. Neither
0: do I. Neither do I, Terry. Oh, wait, there's my endorsement in your book. I'm kidding. I'm kidding.
1: <laughs> Thank you, Kerry. Uh, so uh, Jack and Susie heard me speak at a church in New York City. Wow. I had no idea they were in the audience, and uh, I was on a book tour for my first book called Live Ten. And they got fascinated with an idea of mine that I, that I talked about that day and that I uh, talk about in The Hospital leader called Area of Destiny. And they uh, invited me to their home. In fact, I've been to a couple of their homes. They wrote a chapter about it in their last book. Um, and they just have been really gracious to me. And so it's kind of crazy, but uh, Jack and Susie, have become friends based on an idea they heard me talk about.
0: Talk about grace, right? Like, ask seriously. Grace. I mean, I mean, obviously, they hear a lot of people, and they're not doing that for everybody. But that's incredible. I didn't know the background to that. I, I got to ask you a question, because there's a lot of leaders listening here who are like, gosh, I wonder how that would feel if that ever happened to me. How, how did that make you feel?
1: The thing that's so nuts is that I was in the middle of a teaching series here at the Life Christian Church in New Jersey where I pastor, and I actually had told a Jack Welch illustration the week before from his book, Winning. I am a huge Jack Welch fan in yeah. in, in, in the leadership space. And so I'd been reading his book. I'd been talking about him. I'm standing up there speaking at this church in Manhattan. I had no idea they attended there some, and I looked out there and—, and saw somebody that looked like Jack Welch. And I thought, I'm losing my mind. I, I think I see Jack Welch in the crowd.
0: Or oh, you're thinking body double, right? Hey, you have a doppelg- <laughs> doppelganger.
1: But then he, he walked up to me after the service. He approached me. I'm dying wow. to meet him. He approached me and, and I had just released this book. and he He was so excited for me. And this speaks to a, a certain kind of leadership some of these larger than life figures, there is a reason why they are who they are. And you would have thought I was the only author Jack had ever met in his life. He was so excited for me. So excited. He said, "Uh, you're getting ready to go sign books. It's one of the most enjoyable things you'll ever do. I hope you enjoy it. I just love signing books. So later that day, I get an email from them and um, lo and behold, I've learned that that's just the way that he is. You sit at lunch with him. I haven't spent a lot of time with him. Yeah, yeah. On the the occasions I've spent time with him, you sit at lunch with him. It's like you're the only person in the world. It's the most interesting conversation that ever happened. And truly, I would say a lunch I had with Jack Welch is the most interesting conversation I've ever had in my life because he's he's just an amazing human being.
0: Now, this, is okay, I know we're going to talk about a lot of stuff today, but you've got me absolutely hooked. That is a characteristic of many high-capacity leaders. The, I've never met Jack Welch or Richard Branson, but the people who I know who have, have similar reports, that they're just focused. It's almost like, you know, and, and again, you know, and, and, and I, I would say this of me or anybody, but like... It's not like he needed you. He's not using you to get something Jack. Absolutely Jack not. Welch doesn't have uh any needs that, you know, you might be able. But what do you think that is? Like have you seen that we're talking about the hospitable leader? Do you see that in other high capacity leaders? Like I just want to drill down on that a minute a minute more.
1: I do, especially in that level of leader that um gets elected president of the United States or something. They, right. they, that level of person has an ability to engage you on a human level that most people simply don't have. And um, and the, the passion, the energy, the uh, their ability to listen is one of the things that's so engaging. And um, I, I'll say, by the way, that Susie Welch is a powerhouse in her own right. You know, she's the former editor of the Harvard Business Review. Didn't um,
0: know that. Didn't yeah, know that.
1: Wow. She is. And, uh, you know, she's the career expert on the Today Show. And um, she's spoken in our church. A- again, this idea I have, which isn't a major part of the hospitable leader, though there's a chapter on it called Area of Destiny. She she called that the one of the best career ideas that she had ever heard. And, uh, it's interesting that, that they were captivated by an idea and that led them to want to develop some level of relationship with me and to be good to me. So I'm great.
0: So this is probably out of sequence, but can you go there? You've got, you've got everyone's curiosity peaked. What is your area of destiny?
1: (laughs) Oh, area of destiny. That was not one of your questions. That, that
0: you no, but let's me, let's Gary. go there. No, but you know, I think you you've listened long enough. You told me you've listened long enough. That ninety percent <laughs> of the time, I don't ask any of the questions. I send people ahead of time. Uh, Air, but isn't area, that isn't isn't that all the best conversations? Like Jack Welch didn't come with seventeen questions to meet you. You know, off stage that day.
1: I came so, with some questions for him though. But yes, anyway, yeah. Area of destiny is the is the. God-destined framework for our life. It's what God made our life to be about. It is um, the intersect of mission, passion, and gifting. And I spent a lot of time talking about, as Paul referred to it in the Corinthians, he, he talked about the, the sphere of influence that God had assigned him. And he said that he wouldn't boast outside of that. And so... Um, I don't believe that anybody can be anything they want to be anywhere they want to be it. I believe that possibility exists for us within our area of destiny, what God made our life to be about. And within that place, and there, are, I think there are boundaries to that place. Within that place, there's limitless possibility.
0: So is it like three, like a Venn diagram, three circles converging around gifting, mission, and passion? Did I get the three right?
1: Yes. So there, there's a, there's a, a, a Venn diagram, and and area of destiny is the intersect of mission, passion, and gifting. Gifting, which needs to be uh, worked on and developed into skill, so we can make a unique contribution. But it's asking, you know. Uh, how is what I'm doing connected to God's mission in the world? Um, What is it that I, what meaningful thing do I love to do or things do I love to do? And what am I uniquely gifted to do? And somewhere in there, I find what my life's supposed to be about and I fully invest there. Now I could go into lengthy, Hmm. uh, you know, scriptural underpinnings for this idea. Um, Jack and Susie have taken it and applied it in a very secular way. In, in their most recent book, um, I believe it's called Leadership MBA. They have a chapter on it that's that's quite interesting from a kind of a non-biblical perspective. But my view on it is really shaped by my understanding of Scripture.
0: Hmm. There's a way it works out. I mean, Ken Blanchard would be in the same camp, right, where uh, after he became a Christian, it's like so much of this is in the Bible, and we just— yeah. You know, we just take it elsewhere. What is your unique area of destiny?
1: I believe that God called me to build a great church in the New York City metropolitan area. And that I think once somebody kind of figures out their area of destiny, then everything in their life, in a way, becomes about the same thing or is organized uh within that context. So for me, you know, everything in my life has basically been about that. Now we can get into really nuanced conversations about how that uh, affects my family, for instance. But in my case, I was blessed that, that uh, my wife and, and children have bought into this idea that um, this is what God made my life to be about. Um, And, so so just everything is organized looking through that lens.
0: Hmm. How does that impact your family?
1: Well, one of the things I talk about in, in The Hospitable Leader when I do talk about Area of Destiny is the idea that, that a hospitable leader is hospitable to people and their dreams. And that one of the most important things a leader do is helps people find their place in this world. Hmm. And I describe their place in this world as Area of Destiny. So in my relationship with my children, all three of whom are adults now, a, a, a lot of my interaction with them has been around their area of destiny. What did God make your life to be about? How can I help you achieve that? How can I, how can I cheer you on now that you're out from under my direct stewardship? Um, I, I, I get more joy out of seeing them in their place. Than uh, probably I think about my own these days. Hmm.
0: Okay, well, we could go in so many directions. let's let's back up a little bit and talk about hospitable leadership. What do you mean by that term, Terry?
1: Well, the technical definition of hosp- of a hospitable leader is that a hospitable leader creates environments of welcome where moral leadership can more effectively influence an ever expanding, diversity of people. So a hospitable leader is creating environments where they can more effectively influence people. But key to that is so they can more effectively influence an ever expanding diversity of people.
0: So how is that like, you know, John Maxwell, I think, has become famous for defining leadership as influence, which I I think is hard to argue with. You're saying a similar thing, but you trace it to being hospitable. Is that different from hospitality? Is it the same? like Drill down a little bit on that.
1: It is. It's clearly about hospitality, but one would make a mistake to think when I talk about hospitality, I'm talking about the First Impressions ministry in a local church, for instance. You're not just talking
0: about that was a nice steak, right? Or uh, here's a good cup of coffee.
1: Right. That's part of it. It it is, it is in a multi-layered way, thinking about how to create an environment where people feel welcome. And when people feel welcome, then you can exercise influence. And I like to talk about hospitable leadership being a precursor to every other kind of leadership. It doesn't replace or supplant them. I'm not arguing that it, it doesn't, you know, when you I have a master's degree in organizational leadership, so I've had the privilege of studying from a technical perspective, so many different leadership theories and methodologies, most of which have tremendous value. Uh, Let's say servant leadership, for instance. I'm not making an argument that hospitable leadership replaces any kind of leadership that's effectively understood or practiced today, but it's a precursor to it any kind of leadership can be more effectively practiced in a hospitable environment. So I'm saying that we need to pay attention to the kind of environment that we create because when we do that, we can influence people more effectively.
0: Um so break that down a little bit. Like isn't there five areas in the book where you talk about what hospitable leadership looks like just to help us get our heads around it because I think you're right. People instinctively go, okay, well I'm really nice. I've got good uh you know social graces. We have an amazing foyer if you're in the church or you know, we have a great lobby in the, in the office. Right. And I'm I'm great at entertaining. So, I'm an awesome hospitable leader,
1: right? Check. I think the the way to to respond to that is to say that I don't think it's comprehensive enough. Gotcha. So so let me let me give you an example. First of all, the, the hospitable leader is is based on the leadership methodology of Jesus. Okay. So, I try to get real practical about Jesus as the most successful leader in the world and how he led from a perspective of hospitality. So this could be his literal you know, saying of, of himself that he came eating and drinking. I mean, when he talked about his mission or why he came, he came to seek and save the lost or uh, to give his life a ransom for many. But when he talked about how he came, he said that he came eating and drinking. And when you look at his ministry from beginning to end, from the wedding at Cana through his constant hanging out at dinner parties with all kinds of people to, when there's not food, he creates food and and then uses the moment to talk about something more important than food, not bread, but the bread of life, to um, the Last Supper, to his post-resurrection reconciliation breakfast with Peter. Jesus is constantly leading, exercising influence in some kind of a hospitable context. It's amazing to see Mm how true that is when you look at the gospels through that lens.
0: Yeah, he's not and, exactly standing on a stage or behind a, a you know, pulpit. He is he is in the mix of life in the context of everyday eating and drinking.
1: Yes. Yes. And then it does look like there's an intentionality about it quite frequently. Um let's say for instance and it'll take me just a second to unpack this sure. please inter- please interrupt me Carrie if I if I uh, go on too long with this, but I'm listening. I, I look at the Last Supper as a as a as a way to answer your question about uh, seeing hospitality and hospitable leadership in kind of a comprehensive way. And in the Last Supper, Jesus paid attention to um, hospitality on a number of levels—physically, spiritually, emotionally, attitudinally, and communicatively. So. He gave great attention to where this place, the the supper was going to happen. He, he cared about the physicality of the thing. If you remember, he sent Peter and John and actually there's quite a, in relative terms, quite a bit said about this in the, in the Synoptic Gospels. He sent Peter and John to find the place. It had to be large enough. It had to be furnished in a certain way. They had to prepare the meal, which was no small feat, you know, a, a, a banquet, if you please, for 12 plus one. Jesus, he personally paid attention to the, to the place this was going to happen. Then when you think about spiritual environment, I love the fact that John's gospel talked about Jesus knowing who he was in relationship to the Father. I think a hospitable leader is personally um, at home with God in a way that their presence feels like home. Thirdly, Mm. in terms of emotional climate, John's gospel says in one translation that, that at that dinner that he showed them the full extent of his love. I think that this is something that a hospitable leader does is he finds, he or she finds a way to convey to their followers how much they love them. This is a a soft leadership skill, but it's incredibly important. And there's academic work behind that, by the way, and that's true of each of these things. Rodney Ferris, for instance, did marvelous work around organizational love, how that a leader who's wise, creates an environment where the where the people in the organization know how much they're loved. So Jesus, you know, provided an emotional climate where people felt the full extent of his love. Uh, he uh, provided an attitudinal climate by wrapping himself in the towel of a servant and posturing himself in a way where he was serving the needs of the people who were following him. And then in terms of communication, I mean, when you create that kind of environment, people are going to listen to you. They're going to hang on to every word you say. If you look at what Jesus said at the Last Supper in terms of a leadership talk, it is amazing. He makes covenant, brings his his followers into into a new agreement with him. He casts vision for their preferred future. He uh, tells them that he's going to coach them. Uh, as they move forward, you know the the, the comforter, the counselor is going to come. He he engages in in extreme team building. You know, people go on retreats now and do trust falls. He said, "You're going to have to lay down your life for each other." He uh, demanded that there were results. He expected this is a results-oriented way of leading. He said, "I chose you, so you'd go and bear fruit." So, when when I talk about hospitable leadership, I'm talking about. The whole spectrum of what it feels like to create an environment where people are more inclined to receive your effort to influence them towards some good and beautiful thing.
0: Yeah, that's a lot more than just, hey, how do you like our foyer? We clean the tiles. (laughs) That's a lot more than that. That's
1: part of it. That's part of it. Yeah, yeah. It's just part of it.
0: But it's so much deeper than that. How did you learn this? Like how this is, this is not like, oh, I'm going to write a book. Like this is obviously something you've lived and something you've learned. How, what's the backstory behind it, Terry?
1: Well, my wife and I came to West Orange, New Jersey, a suburb of New York City. Um, I'm sitting right now in our campus where you've been 13 miles from Times Square. Yeah. We came here 27 years ago. We were invited by 54 people. We didn't have a building, we didn't have any money, we didn't have much of anything, but those 54 people were beautiful. And so happened over 50% of them were first-generation immigrants. And I had to ask the question, being a guy from the Bible Belt showing up here in the New York City metropolitan area, how in the world do I grow a church here? It was, you know, New Jersey is not known for its hospitality. (laughs) <laughs> right. When people talk about southern hospitality, they're not talking about the South Bronx and they're not talking about South Jersey. So, right. here we You got we the are.
0: Sopranos, right? I mean, you're literally in Soprano's country.
1: Yep. Correct? Absolutely. Here here we are in in this environment uh, and everything that I knew about how to grow a church didn't work here. Now, Carrie, you can name some great churches in the metropolitan area 27 years ago there, there, there was a very small group of churches that were really having any level of success, and you know it's a post-Christian culture, uh, and we set about trying to figure out how to create an environment where people who didn't want to go to church would want to go to church. I mean, in my in my town in West Orange, New Jersey, my township of fifty thousand people, there were maybe three, for lack of a better word, evangelical churches. The largest one was 100 people, maybe. And I knew that this was my area of destiny. This is what God had made my life to be about. And we had to figure out how to grow a church here. And over the last 27 years, uh, it's grown uh, to be a a significant church uh, for which I'm very grateful. But one of the things that we're best known for pardon the long and rambling answer, but one of the things we're best known for is our diversity. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is probably what we're best known for. Um, We do not have a dominant racial group in our church. We have lots of ethnicities, people from um, uh, a lot of different nations. Um, We are diverse socioeconomically. We are diverse um, baby boomers, millennials, people from every imaginable Christian denomination, um, lots and lots of unchurched people, Jewish people who've confessed their faith in Jesus, and so on. And and I think the hospitable leader, and I'm finally getting to the answer to the question you asked, (laughs) I think the hospitable leader is my attempt to explain what's happened here over the last 27 years. Mm. How do you build a church like that in a place like this? This is, you know, kind of my theory around how you create environments of welcome that where you exercise influence to an ever-expanding diversity of people.
0: It's interesting because you, like me, are Caucasian male, right? White male. Yep. And so it's not like you could even stand up and say, well, look at me, you know, I'm I'm diverse myself. And so that's very unusual. Was it that you figured out early that hospitality, the way you describe it, you know, that being able to love, direct, embrace, listen, like like Jesus style. Was it that you discovered that was a universal language? Like how, when you look back on that, because a lot of churches are trying to become, you know, multi-ethnic, trying to become multi-generational and not doing a good job at it. Was it hospitality or the hospitable leader idea that really you think has helped bridge the gap or or how do you trace that out?
1: Yeah, I think so. Now, I wouldn't have been able to speak to this the way I am now, 20 years ago or 10 years ago, sure. uh, maybe five years ago, I was starting to kind of put words to what we had experienced. And a lot of it we experienced just by God's grace and accident, uh, success, failure, and all of that and some of my own learnings about my personal need to become a more hospitable leader. But uh, we, I, I learned that when you create an environment where people genuinely feel welcomed, um, that, that they will listen, they will give you an opportunity to say what you have to say, and that they will be more inclined to, to, to give you permission to lead them somewhere.
0: Hmm. So that alone, it's, it's almost like people saying that's a universal language.
1: Yeah, I should probably have a more sophisticated answer. But, <laughs> but, but the fact is, I don't really know how else to explain what good. has happened here. It, it is just people <laughs> feel invited, they feel welcomed, And then, I mean, we have certain values now that we've developed as a consequence of what we've learned that are still shaping us today about loving the stranger, for instance, which is one of the welcomes in the hospitable leader. You asked me a minute ago about the five welcomes in the hospitable leader. Yeah, let's talk about that. Yeah, so the first welcome is home, and that's where I discuss how that a, a leader needs to figure out a way to create a sense of home, whatever their leadership context is, and that home is where the heart is warm. And that when people's hearts are warm, they're op- more open to being led, soft leadership skills. They, they do bring hard results. Um, secondly, the second welcome is called strangers. And this is really big to this idea of diversity. And I think it speaks to a lot of the issues we're having in our society here in the States now, at least. I think you you guys in Canada are probably doing a better job around some of this. But uh, the the writer of the Hebrews said that, uh, Hebrews 13, 1, that we need to keep on loving each other as brothers and sisters, brotherly love, Philadelphia, right? Hebrews 13, 2 says, and don't forget to be hospitable to strangers because when you're hospitable to strangers, you might be entertaining an angel from God. And we've talked about how that we we have to intentionally Take care of Philadelphia or home. Love each other's brothers and sisters, which is hard enough to do sometimes. We have to get that right. But then we have to move to philoxenia. Philoxenia is the Greek word which means to love a stranger or to be hospitable to, to a stranger or to entertain a stranger. And so we have to Love loving strangers, and when we do, we often find out that those people who are strange to us are messengers from God, angels, that we're entertaining them unaware. So we hold up this value in our church. I just spoke about it a couple of weeks ago. I speak about this usually around all the elections because our church is so diverse. I don't get to operate with the assumptions of so many pastors in the Bible Belt that people are thinking and voting and assuming the same way. Uh, That's not true in our context. So I define a stranger as anyone who who seems strange to you or to whom you seem strange. That can have to do with <laughs> that can have to do with denominational background, that can have to do with politics, that can have to do with lifestyle choices, that can have to do with anything.
0: Which is right where all of the cultural divide is right now. Yep. It's like we're becoming so tribal. It's like I can only talk to people who look like me, believe like me, think like me behave like me. And if you're different, you're my enemy. And that's happening in the Christian world, left, right, and center.
1: It breaks my heart. And I think this is maybe one of the most important things that I want to say through the hospitable leader is that we have to love loving strangers. And that when we love strangers, we often find out that they become God's messenger in our life. And I have experienced that over and over and over.
0: Okay, well, let's talk about that because you are diverse where you are, but there are Republicans listening who hate Democrats and Democrats listening who hate Republicans. And I'm sure we've got a few listeners who are like, you know what, if you don't have my skin color or my background or my socioeconomic status, we are not going to be friends that is a tough message to swallow.
1: We have a mandate from God to love the stranger. And I really don't think we as followers of Jesus get to choose whether or not to do that. We not only to to love them, but to, but to show them hospitality. And, um, when we do that, uh, then we're we're joining with Jesus and dividing wall, down breaking down the dividing walls of of hostility. Um, Henry Nowen said uh, in his really seminal work on hospitality, uh, I, be, I believe it's called Reaching and Reaching Out, is marvelous. He, he said that we have to move from hostility to hospitality, mm-hmm. and and listen, in, in, in the in the in the church that I'm pastoring, people have to love sitting in a small group with people who are not like them. You're sitting with someone from a different set of life experiences concerning race or someone who, who you watch Fox and they watch MSNBC. I mean, that's like the biggest divide in the United States right now. <laughs> you could explain a lot of society just by that. And you have to love that. You have to, you have to in, in our congregation, you have to want to do that or you're not gonna be happy. In, in our in our service,
0: well, I I hear the, I hear the have to. I think what's fascinating to me is you have 132 distinct communities in your church. Is that number accurate, roughly? Yes. From what you've yes. been able to look at, so that's that's like diverse, diverse. That's the United Nations. You clearly have Democrats who hate Republicans and Republicans who hate Democrats. Just leave it at that level. Plus all the you know all the racial stuff going on. How is that playing out? Like, how do you get somebody who's like, I only like my tribe to love a stranger? What are some of the stories you've seen? What are some of the ways that you have practically helped people do that? Because clearly that appears to be happening at your church.
1: So I'll share a really personal illustration Yeah, of my own journey. Do you, do you remember as, as a Canadian, do you remember everything around the OJ Simpson trial?
0: Oh, yeah, a lot of it. I was in seminary at the time. And 85% of the audience is American, so
1: maybe higher. Okay, They all all know. Well, this this may be an editable um, part of the (laughs) podcast because I haven't tried to tell the story on a podcast before. I very carefully tell it in the book. I'm listening. Um, uh, During the O.J. Simpson trial, which exposed all kinds of racial division in our society, um, I... I was watching it just like everybody else was. Uh, and my longtime associate pastor, uh, an African-American man by the name of Andrew McLeese, and I uh, watched the verdict together. Yeah. And um, obviously, it, he was declared innocent. And when he was declared innocent, I was, I was apoplectic. I just couldn't believe it. I was yelling at the television because to me it was so obvious I looked over at my buddy for all these years, Andrew, and he was sitting there, um, not happy by any stretch of the imagination, but certainly not upset. And I asked him, you know what? What, what do you? How, how can you not be upset? Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. He and I had never talked about the trial during its entirety, unless I had just shared my opinion at some point. Well, finally, he said, uh, you you know, he felt the same way that 95% of African Americans felt about the verdict, which was whether or not he was guilty. The fact that race had been introduced by someone in law enforcement who in the past had uttered a racial epithet, and so on, and the way that that black men have been treated in America, well, they they questioned the justice of the whole system. And then so I turned anyway, I, I I got ahead of my story, but I turned the television off and sat there and said, Andrew, talk to me. What am I missing here? And he said, You know what? You have no idea what it's like to be a black man in America. And I said, Clearly I don't. Please. Help me understand what I'm not understanding. And he said, I still drive, and this broke my heart. It, it, it makes me teary-eyed saying it all these years later. He said, I still drive through some towns in New Jersey, afraid to be pulled over by a cop, because I'm afraid that I, uh, how I will be treated as a black man, the assumptions that will be made about me. So when I look at O.J. Simpson, I don't know whether he's innocent or guilty but I know what it's like to be a black man in America. And that moment, Carrie, was Mm -hmm. one of many moments that I've had over the last 27 years where someone strange to me in some way became a messenger from God to me and helped me understand something I never would have understood before. Now, let me say, I think most people in law enforcement in this country do a great job and I'm grateful for them. And I'm not... I don't wanna make any big societal statements except to say that, that that kind of journey is the kind of journey that our congregation is, is on, both white people, black people, brown people, Asian people, poor people, rich people. When you're doing life with people who are coming from a different life experience than you are, it is challenging, and it is expanding, and it's terrible, and it's wonderful. And
0: no, I I really appreciate you telling that story. And you know, and when when was the OJ Simpson trial? Nineteen ninety-five? Twenty
1: years ago, I think. Yeah, Over long years time ago.
0: ago. Long time ago. But I've I've had similar conversations this year in two thousand eighteen with African American friends of mine who are telling me what it's like. Uh, to not be a Caucasian male, and you know what, it, it you need those conversations to really. First of all, I think at the heart of it is empathy. At the heart of this,
1: in that regard, yes, yeah, a- absolutely.
0: Can you be? I guess the the question is, and it's it's a short one, but like, can you be a hospitable leader without having empathy?
1: No. Absolutely not. Because one thing that a hospitable leader has to learn to do is to practice empathetic listening. And that doesn't mean that you agree with someone. Now, listen, I, I'm sure I'm, I'm you know, there, there are a lot of white men hearing me who have their own story to tell right now about the way some of us are being made to feel, feel in the societal discussion, which I think is unfair, So I'm not saying that I necessarily agree with everything the stranger thinks, feels, says, or that I'm assigning truth to it, but I'm understanding that their truth is something that I need to get inside and try as best as I can to understand.
0: And that goes far beyond black and white, beyond male and female. I mean, we're starting to almost quote scripture here in Christ. There is no right, yep. uh, <clears throat> slave or free, male or female, et cetera, et cetera. But I think that breaks down the barrier in really meaningful ways. Okay, so that was number three. There's a fourth and a fifth, right? That was, that was a really good tangent.
1: Yeah, so uh, the first welcome is home. The second welcome is strangers. The third welcome actually is dreams. This oh, there is you probably, go. This is are only at number two. <laughs> yeah. This is probably my actually the, my favorite part of the book because I spend a lot of time talking about how a hospitable leader is hospitable to people and their dreams. Huh. A lot of, uh, and this is where the area of destiny discussion happens in the book. A, a lot of leaders, it... You, probably unintentionally cause people to feel like the reason everyone is there is to make the leader's dreams come true or to fulfill the dreams of the organization. And that is inhospitable leadership. And um, I I talk about how Jesus in John 10, 10 in the message says that um, the good shepherd Uh, promises people more and better life than they ever dreamed of. A a hospital believer is not a taker, they're a giver. And they, they, they do not strive to accomplish organizational mission and certainly not their dreams at the expense of their followers. But somehow or another, they find the ability to get up every day and focus on helping the dreams of their followers come true, while at the same time coalescing everyone around organizational mission so that the dreams of the organization can come true. It's not either and, uh, it's not either or, but it's both and. So um, a a hospitable leader is hospitable to people's dreams. Wow.
0: You see that a lot in people. And, you know, even to a certain extent, you look at going right back to the beginning, Jack Welch and Susie Welch, that's kind of their attitude toward you. It's not about them. It's about how do we create a relationship where, you know, your dreams get honored. That's really cool, using your power to to serve others or your influence to serve others.
1: Okay. Yeah, and and, and and what happens is when you do that, when, when the people, when the people in your organization know that you get up every day to help them see their dreams come true, they typically fall all over themselves. To help yeah. your dreams come true. That's
0: yeah. fascinating.
1: Um, number four. Number four is communication. So, I don't think it does any good to um, welcome people into an environment where truth isn't spoken. And a lot of times, when people are talking about you know, in invitation and welcome, um, they 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 do not imagine that in that environment truth will actually be spoken but i believe with all my heart that um if you love someone you speak the truth to them because it's the truth that sets people free whether this is small t truth whether this is is in a marriage and a lot of the book is really applicable to marriage and a, a, applicable a lot of stuff about parenting in the book because i think parents are the most important leaders in our society or if this is true in a business uh, you, you've got to be able to speak truth to one another or no one's growing, and it's not loving to not speak truth. And then, of course, in a, in a Christian context, what, what good ultimately does it do to create an environment for people to feel welcome if we don't speak truth to them, capital T Truth? And so I, 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 I spend a lot of time talking about hospitable communication. How do you communicate truth in a way that people are willing to hear it, even if they don't agree with you, they're willing to hear it and um, and then possibly uh, receive your influence effort and be transformed by it.
0: Well, and that's an example, Terry, where, you know, the guy listening to it, it's like, oh, finally, truth. Okay, yeah, I'm capital T truth. You know, I speak in all caps on my social media. Let me give you some truth. <laughs> that's not where you're coming from at all, is it?
1: No, I'm I'm talking about saying to people what they need to hear and communicating the truth of the gospel in a way that brings people more and better life than they ever dreamed of. Wow.
0: So it's got to be life-giving, which ultimately the truth is. It Absolutely. really is. Wow. Okay, finally, number five.
1: So number five is the, the fifth welcome is called feast. So part of the way that a metaphor, I guess, I use to describe hospitable leadership, and I get into this early in the book, and I'm just coming back to it at the end, is that uh, Jesus said that one way the kingdom of God could be described is as a feast that a father threw for his son. Hmm. And I've wondered what it what would it be like for our leadership domain, our sphere of influence to feel like a feast for our followers? Whether that's, you know our children, or our congregants, or our employees, or our customers, uh, our, our stockholders? What would it be like to create an environment that feels like a feast? And, and you know, by the way, God has been cre- tr- trying to create that kind of environment for humanity since the very beginning yeah. when he created this banquet of possibility for humanity uh, in terms of physical food and everything else. And it's the way history is going to end. As Isaiah said, when it's all said and done, he prepares a banquet where all people sit with the finest of wine and the finest of food, right? I mean, God is that kind of God. And one way the kingdom of God can be described is as a feast. So I encourage leaders to think about their leadership domain in that way. Well, so at the end of the book, I come back to the idea that if you're going to throw a feast for your followers, you have to live a feast. And... Mm. um. So I, I talk about the the inner state of the the hospitable leader. If you're gonna if you're gonna create home for someone, you have to be at home. Mm-hmm. Uh, I talk about cultivating high hope levels. Which, by the way, I think that your work in didn't see it coming around cynicism and and hope as the antidote as an antidote for cynicism is so incredibly important. You can't throw a feast for people if you're not hopeful and happy
0: love the way you put it if you're gonna throw a feast you have to live a feast is that what you said yep that's awesome so what does that mean like like how do okay how do you live a feast because people are like oh huge expense account right that's where the brand my brain my little tiny pea-sized brain immediately goes but i'm sure that's not what you mean i mean yeah being generous that's got to be part of it but like But I know what you mean. It's like, you know, by the time this airs, we'll we'll be a few weeks on the other side of the passing of Eugene Peterson. I was going through images for a blog post I did. There's a lot of images of him looking like he's feasting, like he's not at the table, but he's got the smile on his face, this joy, this abundance of life that's coming to him. And his family, you know, in his final hours, they were hours of joy and gratitude uh, from the accounts that I read. And one of his final words, according to his son, was "Let's go," as though he had already met the heavenly party. And it's like, yeah, I'm I'm ready. Let's go. I'm getting goosebumps as I say that. But is, you know, what do you mean by by live a feast?
1: There are a lot of ways that it can, that could be spoken to. But since you're referring to Eugene Peterson, um, I I quote him several times in the book. I love his autobiography, The Pastor. Have you read it? No, oh,
0: but it's on my list now. Oh, I, uh, it's I, I just, gotta it's,
1: tell it's it's beautiful. And there there are certain types of leaders who lived, and who live beautiful lives. And and one of the things I just happened to read something of his yesterday, uh, sourced from the pastor, I believe, uh, or Christ plays in ten thousand places, actually, where he he talks about uh, the incarnation and the enfleshment of Christ and. And the humanity of Jesus, one, one of the, the points he makes, I don't want to make too much of how he said it, but part of what I got from what I read is that Jesus enjoyed being a human being. Hmm. Jesus enjoyed ha- having a human body, and theologically he does now still have a glorified human body, but when he was here on this planet, he enjoyed being human. And in one translation, you know, he said, the son of man came eating and drinking. One translation says the son of man came enjoying life. I think we miss how much he enjoyed life, relationship, eating, drinking. Uh, And so then when you look, you look at Eugene Peterson Uh, he's big on this idea of of, uh, finding pleasure in life. But then you look at other leaders that I reference in The Hospitable Leader in this regard, C.S. Lewis or or Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, Mm -hmm. These guys knew how to have fun. They knew how to enjoy a meal. They knew how to build friendships. They, they, um, They enjoyed the good and beautiful things of this world. So Jesus, the holiest man who ever lived, said that he came enjoying life. I think we can do the most serious work in the world, but do it better when we have a thread of feasting in our life.
0: What does that look like for you, Terry?
1: Probably the way that I would speak to that personally would, first of all, be to say that this is something I've had to learn over the years.
0: <laughs> Speak to all the workaholics, please, yeah. for a moment, and all the legalists for a moment, please. Would you do that?
1: I I, I, I am so um, inclined to intensity, uh, to overworking, yeah. to wanting to change the world yesterday, if possible, that I have had to learn to feast and and the the, the most important uh, and, and I, I tell a story in the hospitable leader that would take too long to tell now about a a big moment in my life when I started realizing um, how how that that Jesus though holy enjoyed being human mm-hmm. and I've had to enjoy being human and learn to enjoy life and so the ways that that shows up now probably more than any other way sounds kind of obvious perhaps. But to tell you how much I enjoy my family, my relationship with my wife, to whom I've been married for 35 years, and our three adult kids aged 26 to 32, the fun that we have together, the pleasure of, of um, sitting around a table laden with food and drink and storytelling and sitting in a hot tub together and going on great vacations and, um, you know, so that, you know, for me, practicing a Sabbath every week has hmm. been. What a does big that look part. like
0: for you? sorry, it's a question because I suck at Sabbath. I feel like I build it into every day, but like, tell, tell me what Sabbath looks like for you.
1: I, my wife and I, shut it down on Monday, hmm. and we try to do things that, um, that are free of work and full of pleasure, and. Um, again, it's something I've had to learn to do, but I would say, for the most part, I have learned to do it. Now I'm in a book release period. You know how that goes, and <laughs> I'm probably breaking that rule a little bit right now. But I, yeah. I won't do it. I won't do it much because I've become convinced from Scripture of the need to practice this feasting thing in my life. It also, for me, it's it's about exercise. Yep. It's about um it's it's about um quiet time in the mornings uh it's about doing things that uh, cultivate a high hope level. I guess you were asking about Sabbath, and I went back to the whole feasting piece, but no,
0: that's good I just, everybody's got a different practice, and you know, I asked Eugene Peterson about that, and for him, it was. Every Monday was his, too. He would just, uh, he and Jan would go for a hike, kind of an all-day thing. They would not say a word in the morning. It was a silent hike. And then they would open up their um, knapsack and have lunch together, and they would start to talk about what they had seen or heard, and then they would hike back, and that was their Sabbath. And, you know, it's the, I think one of his translations was the unhurried rhythms of grace.
1: Yeah, take my yoke upon you. That's a beautiful Mm. place the way that he, he translates that passage is beautiful.
0: It is. And, and I think for a lot of us, it's just go, 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 go all the time. So that's good. Feasting, feasting is a good metaphor. One of the questions I get, because I talk about self-care a lot on the other side of burnout, is what is the difference between self-care and self-indulgence? So how, where is that line, or is there a line where feasting becomes self-indulgence?
1: Without question. And I I think the way that I would answer that is to say that feasting has to happen in the context of a life of purpose. Uh, I mean, if it's about the feasting, if that's not the purpose of life. hmm. I mean, again, Jesus said he was very clear as to what his mission was. He came came to seek and save people far from god and to give his life as a ransom for many the context in which he he lived was um you know he said that he came eating and drinking but that that wasn't his purpose
0: but i guess the idea was he didn't sit there with his lips puckered all up tight yelling at people either like there was there was a joy about him that attracted well here's your church people from every background people who didn't feel like they belonged in a religious sphere, loved him and the religious people got the most upset and ultimately killed him.
1: Yeah. He welcomed people who had never been welcomed there, which is genius leadership because he, he multiplied his influence uh, infinitely, but he, he feasted in the context of a life of purpose. So he practiced hospitable leadership. In, in ways that I've described, but it's important to remember, they weren't just sitting around singing Kumbaya. I mean, these guys ended up giving their life for the cause. I mean, I, I think, so So we can't forget what this is really all about. Ultimately, we have to fulfill the mission that we've been called to fulfill.
0: No, nah, th- that's very true. Churches, <clears throat> there's some leaders who, when they saw that title of this episode or whatever, when, or title of your book, are like, yeah, we're hospitable, you know we know hospitality, Uh, what are some common blind spots for leaders and for organizations where they might think, yeah, you know what, I'm, I'm doing pretty good on that, but you'd be like, take a second look.
1: In general, I would say that we are inhospitable to people when we are not always checking our assumptions about them. And this can show up in so many ways. This can show up in terms of um, the signage on our property. You know, are we assuming that they they know what we know about where to go? Or mm-hmm. it can have to do with the way we're crafting a sermon on a Sunday morning. I mean, if we're getting up and assuming that people are coming from the same frame of reference we are, we're making a terrible mistake. At least we're not multiplying influence to an expanding diversity of people. Right. Um, I think when even the conversations in, 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 in our churches, people assume that other people think the same thing they do. They'll make offhanded comments about something that's in the news or something going on in politics or something that that they think to be true according to Scripture that perhaps someone else doesn't. And I, I just think we need to really be listening to the culture um, we need to be listening to the people in our congregations. We need to be understanding better what their experiences are. So I I think that, that I would just say that, uh, one thing that I've seen churches do is just, we all come to the table with the same set of assumptions and we miss so many opportunities to expand our influence.
0: Hmm. Terry, I can't believe we're already at an hour, but, uh, anything else you want to say? Before we go today,
1: other than just thank you, Carrie. Um, <laughs> I, you know, a lot of people are are listening to you, watching you, paying attention to to the things that you endorse and uh, care about. And for you to endorse the hospital believer and to invite me on your show, it's a big deal. I appreciate it.
0: Well, you got a great message, and it's one you know, any regular listener or reader would know. Uh, I'm pretty concerned about creating a civil dialogue. It's one of the reasons I still have comments on my blog, why I still while I still interact, you know, on social media, some days it's very frustrating. Um, but there has to be a place for the good people to go. and there has to be language for people who aren't gonna spend the rest of their life yelling at their neighbor to figure out, well, how do I embrace that? And I think you give us a really good, template this is not a shallow book if you're wondering guys like this is not like oh i read it on a you know two-hour flight this this is actually some well it's really your life's work isn't it terry in many ways it really, ways? Is. It really yeah, is. and it's a template and i mean i think if it caught the attention of jack and Susie welch you you would be wise to pick it up so anyway it's called the hospitable leader create environments where people and dreams flourish terry a smith what does the a stand for
1: Alan, and no one's ever asked me that before. There Carrie. you go.
0: I got to have the the one question where it's like, no one's ever asked me that before. There you go. Uh, that's, that's great. Yeah. It's not like Carrie Newhoff where you don't have a lot of competition on the internet. Terry Smith would be, uh, there'd be a few of you out there, right?
1: But it's a lot easier to to spell Smith, Carrie, I think, than, than Newhoff, Newhoff oh, which yeah. I've had immense trouble spelling, actually, in the past.
0: Listen, when I was in kindergarten, I was like, wow, this is going to be the rest of my life. Like, it took me years to figure out how to spell it. But anyway, that's life. Terry, people are going to want to find you online. Where can they find the book and and learn more about you?
1: So people can go to my website, terryasmith.com, and and listeners of this podcast can go to terryasmith.com forward slash carrie. Okay. And learn more about the, the the community that's that's growing around the idea of hospitable leadership, and um, they can order the book there if they'd like. They can get a free free preview of the book there. Of course, they oh, can cool. purchase they could purchase the book any place. Books are sold, but uh, I think they'll enjoy going to TerryASmith.com forward slash uh C A R E Y as if people wouldn't know how to spell your first name. And my name, Terry, is T-E-R-R-Y. And it'd be fun to have people check that out and get a free preview of the book.
0: That's great. Terry, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time today. You helped a lot of people and made a lot of us think. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Carrie.
0: Well, that's a, a lot deeper than just, you know, hey, our foyer's clean and we have a great guest services team, isn't it? If you want more, you can jump into the show notes. You'll find them at com slash episode 227. And just remember, if you've subscribed, and I hope you have by now, we have a new episode dropping in a couple of days with Craig Grishel that is one of my favorites. I mean, Craig is just so honest, so vulnerable, so open about the pain of leadership. And we do talk about his new book, uh, Hope in the Dark, but in a really like super cool way. I think you're going to love that. You don't want to miss it. Also coming up on the podcast, Larry Osborne, Pete Scazzaro, John Thompson, Christine Birch, so many more. We're really excited for that. Here's an excerpt from the next episode with Craig Grishel. So there's just so many moving parts. And with six children recognizing the multiplication factor, of we're just trying to stay on top of things right now. It's so hard to be in so many different places and deal with all the emotional complexity. So the way that hits me, Carrie, is um, spiritually, it seems like when I'm dealing with emotional issues, my, it, it, it's like it draws on my spiritual battery. And so my spiritual battery gets low. Uh, what it used to take to charge it, it seems to take more now. And so I'm working longer hours, harder hours, and I'm also finding new ways to engage spiritually. Um, and having I'm kind of having to put more work in uh, to keep the spiritual passion alive. I wish I could say it was the opposite, but it's that's the way it is. Yeah, so that's coming up uh, later this week on the podcast. And uh, again, subscribers, you get that absolutely for free. If this episode has helped you, just let us know. Leave a rating or review on iTunes, share it on your social. Or drop us a note. We'd love to hear from you. And uh, yeah, remember to check out our partners. So if you need a better engagement strategy, go to pushpay.com carry. And if you would like to repurpose, well, let's say sixty dollars to $100,000 of next year's budget back into ministry, check out remodelhealth.com forward slash carry as well guys, thank you so much. I so appreciate this. Wherever you are listening to this, know we're with you. I'm cheering for you. I'm praying for you. And we'll see you in a couple of days. And I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before.
1: You've been listening to the Kerry Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.